Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we'll make a start to the afternoon session. It's our, our pleasure to uh, welcome, to speak to us, uh, Dr. Tony Lane, uh, who is, uh, as your program will tell you, the Professor of Historical Theology at the London School of Theology. Describes him as an enthusiast for Christian doctrine, especially its history. And he tells me he's just uh, entering his 40th year of studying John Calvin. Uh, so he's celebrating a kind of anniversary of his own. And uh, we look, look forward to some of the fruits of those years of study as he addresses us in a moment on Calvin's way of doing theology, exploring the Institutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, be, being so much more humble than the previous speaker, I wouldn't presume to, to stand up there or, or to be more precise, I need to reach down to get to the PowerPoint. <laughs> so that's why I'm um, reaching over like that all the time. Uh, he had the advantage of having you fired up with coffee. I have you with a heavy stomach full of lunch. So if I see the heads nodding, I will assume that's in approval and agreement. <laughs> what I'm about to say. Um, We've already heard of one excellent book that is not on the bookstore. I must mention another one. Um, just earlier this summer, I brought out a book called A Reader's Guide to Calvin's Institutes, which actually is designed to be read alongside it. It's, it's not a book to read about it. It's a book to read while you are, to guide you which bits to read and how to read it and, and, and help you through it. So I have a few copies, just a, a few copies with me here, uh, which I might even be prepared to sell for a discount. But um, that is... Uh, this year published by Baker, A Reader's Guide to Calvin's Institutes. I've also got a couple of other volumes. It just happens I've got copies for sale, three of each of volumes of papers on Calvin for, for those of us who you know, really are fired up with Calvin. There are a couple of volumes of papers from various conferences. Okay, so our topic. Um, Calvin's way of doing theology, exploring the Institutes. Calvin is, of course, best known for his well, to give it its full title, is Instruction in the Christian Religion, which we normally commonly call the Institutes. And it went through five major editions, and Calvin was revising it during most of his literary and pastoral life, from the beginning of his ministry till almost the end. And as he says, like Augustine, he's one of those who write as they learn and learn as they write, and the book develops uh, with him. So what I'm going to do is to start with some account of its development, how it came about, of its availability today and its purpose, uh, and that will be a shorter part of what I'm doing. And then I'll be turning to some of its themes with the aim of uh, whetting your appetite um, to, so that you can then go on and read it for yourself, for those who haven't. So first of all, the editions of the Institutes. The first edition appeared in 1536, when Calvin was still only 26 years old and before he had begun his ministry in Geneva. He probably finished writing it uh, in August 1535, that's the date of the uh, opening preface, and it was published the following March in Basel in a pocketbook format. Now we think of the Institutes as a massive work these days, but the first edition was roughly as long as from Matthew to Ephesians. So it really was a pocketbook. And there were six chapters. Four of them uh, cover the law, Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the, the two sacraments, Baptism and the Lord's Supper. This being the traditional components of a, of a catechism. 
And then there are two other chapters, uh, one on the five false, i.e. Roman Catholic sacraments, and another on Christian liberty. And these are more polemical in tone, as is the prefatory address to which I'll come back in, in a minute or two. Okay, that's the first one. 1539, the second edition, that was um, almost finished by October 1538 and published the following year in Strasbourg, where Calvin was ministering. Um, he had three years of ministering in, in Geneva, two, three years in Geneva, um, and, well, like two, and then he was in exile for, for three years, and then he returned to Geneva. And it was while he was in exile in Strasbourg that this was published but it was actually written almost entirely while he was in Geneva and some people have, have seen the influence of Martin Bucer at Strasbourg on this edition but I think that's mistaken because uh, they've, been, they've been misled by the publication date rather than when it was written which was a year earlier and that's over twice the length of the first edition so now these six, six chapters have become 17 a couple of years later there was a French translation um, published in Geneva but aimed at the French market well, so what, big deal actually it is a very big deal because this was um, a, a, a formative event in the development of the French language uh, a major theological work um, actually being written in French because French was a vernacular that you, you spoke in the butcher shop and so on you didn't write serious stuff in French but Calvin changed that and his elegant French style played an, an important part in the formation of the language and if you were in France doing a degree in the French language you could find yourself reading Calvin simply as part of the formation of French <coughs> and this also shows that Calvin's concern was not just to reach the intelligentsia the clergy but also the laity so they also would be able to read this then the um, third edition was, is less radical in 1543 and that does reflect the influence of his time in Strasbourg um, 1538 to 41 in Strasbourg uh, and he'd, he'd more or less finished this work by beginning of 1542 and then the fourth edition well that's less significant the main significant fact is that uh, he begins subdividing it all much more uh, the sections, the chapters are subdivided into sections and then the crucial one the, the definitive one which is the one that people normally read came out in 1559 during the previous winter 1558-9 Calvin was ill with malaria and determined that he had to produce the definitive edition of the institutes he added more material and also thoroughly rearranged it and he tells us that while he didn't regret the earlier editions he was never really satisfied with it until this one and it's true that he put great care into the overall structure um, but something that is sometimes overlooked is that because of the pressure of work he did not spend the time he should have done, done revising the details of the work and there are a number of places where it clearly you know, should have been edited uh, and, and corrected and brought up to date more than it was but the overall structure yes he, he got that the way he wanted it and this isn't only the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth and the 40th anniversary of my reading of Calvin but it's also the 450th anniversary of the, this definitive edition of the Institutes and this one, the, the final one is roughly the length of Genesis through to Luke so that's, as you can appreciate, quite substantial and more than five times what the first edition was and Calvin 
himself yes I can't type here it should be 1560 the French Calvin himself actually translated it into French he, he certainly didn't have time to translate everything he wrote into French that others do that but this was so important that he did it himself and again this shows the, his concern to reach out not just to the clergy but to um, ordinary folk in France <coughs> well English translations I thought I would just give you a very quickly an account of what's available because I'm, I expect most of you will probably choose to read it in English rather than Latin or French so given that it's, you might be interested to know the four translations that have been the first in 1561, so very early, was by Thomas Norton. Uh, Norton was actually Thomas Cranmer's son-in-law, so it has a sort of connection with the English Reformation there. And it was reprinted many times in, in, in uh, that, you know, 16th, 17th century. Interestingly, Jim Packer expressed the view that this was the best of the translations. Uh, but, of course, it is in Elizabethan English, so... Um, <coughs> It's not such an easy read for us today. The, the second one by John Allen was published in 1813 uh, in London. It's actually a British translation, but in recent years it's, it's more or less been combined to the United States, where it was reprinted many times um, with an introduction by B.B. Warfield, who of course was American, on the, the literary history of the Institutes. Published also in Britain, this time in Edinburgh, the third translation by Henry Beveridge, part of the Calvin Translation Society project, and I see that one of the tr uh, translations of Calvin's tracts is available at the back on, on the uh, sacraments. That's the same series, the Calvin Translation Society series. This is still in print, and you can, you can sometimes buy very small print, one-volume form uh, versions of it, which is tempting, of course, because it's a lot cheaper than the, um, the, the two-volume one with all the notes. But if you're serious, I, I would advise you not to do that because it's not terribly easy to read. It's also available electronically, as is the next one um, by Ford Lewis Battles in 1960. And this is, I would say, the best one to use, not because I'm saying Battles is necessarily better than Beveridge as a translator, but it's much more nicely laid out. It has full notes, extensive in indexes, and uh, is, 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 I think, the best one to use for that reason. And that's the one that this, um, this book is modelled on. Since you're all going to buy this book, you'll also want to buy the, the Battles edition to read alongside it. So, just a word about the, um, the purpose of the Institutes. Why did Calvin write it? He had different aims as he went along. And we can see that because from his title pages and also the prefaces he wrote. The 1536 one, I think um, Joel alluded to this earlier, uh, the title page says that it embraces almost the whole sum of piety, whatever is necessary to know, necessary to know the doctrine of salvation, a most worthy work to be read by all persons zealous for piety. This was a brief summary of the Christian faith with the goal of edification and that would especially be true of the four chapters modelled on the catechism but before it actually appeared something happened which um, created the need for a, a slightly different type of work in October 1534 uh, a number of some French Protestants stuck up around Paris um, a number of placards uh, sort of tracts attacking the Roman Catholic mass and um, one of them was actually posted up 
on the door of the royal bedchamber, if that report is to be believed. The king was not amused and launched a vigorous onslaught on the French evangelicals. And he justified this by saying, oh, they're just a bunch of seditious Anabaptists. And Calvin wanted to disprove that, so he dedicated 1536 edition to King Francis as a confession of faith and an apology, uh, apology in the sense of defence uh, for of the French Protestants. So that's the first edition. In the letters to the reader at the beginning of the second edition, Calvin uh, brings in now another aim. The institutes are designed to be uh, an introduction and a guide to the study of scripture and to complement his commentaries. So because of the institutes, says Calvin, he, he, he will not lead to need to digress on doctrinal matters in his commentaries, which means he won't have to write very lengthy commentaries unlike certain people um, thinking he's thinking of Martin Busser now this should also warn us against a, a, a fallacy that's sometimes around of thinking of Calvin as the man of one book the Institutes that's just not true he actually spent far more time writing the commentaries in the Institutes um, he lectured at the Academy which we were hearing about earlier in Geneva not on doctrine he lectured on the Old Testament so the institutes and the commentaries are designed to be used together to complement one another. The institutes give um, a, a theological undergirding for the commentaries and the commentaries provide a, a more solid exodus of passages in the institutes. So if you're reading the institutes and Calvin refers to say Romans 8.15 he's citing Romans 8.15 but maybe he's also saying hey go and look at my commentary on Romans 8.15 so it can be seen both ways as a reference to the biblical text which obviously it is but also potentially as um, an indicator that if you want to know more on that look up his commentary well the um, French editions from 1541 on contain an, an introduction which uh, where Calvin also explains that the institutes are a guide for the laity in their study of the Bible so that's again um, another uh, sort of complementary purpose um, to the, the, the Latin which was designed more for scholars or clergy so Calvin's Institute is still widely read today I think one can say more so than any other major theological work of that sort of age this is partly because of his great success in aiming at lucid brevity covering a topic briefly while yet expressing clearly what he had to say which makes it a lot easier to read than most comparable works it's also in part due to his great theological skills which are appreciated um, even by those who differ from him on particular doctrines uh, some for instance might differ with him on baptism some might differ on predestination and, and so on I doubt if there's a single person here who, who would go with him on everything especially on his view of church-state relations but we, we must not forget that this was a book written in the 16th century to address 16th century concerns. Undoubtedly, we can learn much from studying it today, but we mustn't fall into the trap of imagining that he is addressing our situation. But as long as we bear that in mind, uh, then uh, there is a great deal that we can learn from him. Right, now just 
while we're on the preliminaries, a bit about the structure of the institution. I'll, I'll make this brief so we can get down to the, 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 the meaty, more meaty bit. Um, there's been quite a debate over the last um, century or so about the structure of the institutes and with a variety of theories. Calvin himself gives us uh, his own structure in a way in the title of the books. So book one is the knowledge of God the creator. Book two, the knowledge of God the redeemer in Christ. Uh, book three, the way we, in which we receive the grace of Christ. Uh, those are abbreviated titles. And book four, the external means or aids uh, which God invites us into the society of Christ. Well, despite this, um, scholars have come up with various um, theories looking for a, a deeper underlying structure. Um, probably the most plausible is that it's based around the Apostles' Creed. Um, and there's an element of truth in that. Those are, in a sense, the four articles of, of, of the Creed. But um, if he was following that, then the Holy Spirit would come in in book four. Sorry, in, in book three, um, but that is, but isn't mentioned in the title. And also, the resurrection, the resurrection should come at the end of book four, whereas in fact it comes in book three. So you know, he's not be. Yes, it's sort of loosely based around the Apostles' Creed, but not as in any sort of really strict way. Right then, what is the nature of the institutes? You will see my relative inexperience with PowerPoint. Each time I come up with a new slide I'm wondering are they all going to come up in one go or are they going to come up um, separately and I haven't yet managed to work out why but um, uh, maybe some of you will identify with me on that one it's less work if it all comes up at once so is the Institute a work of systematic theology well in the sense that Calvin works in an orderly way through the whole range of Christian doctrine yes it is but in some rather important senses no it's not and in particular, for, for many people today, systematic theology means expounding the Christian faith from the perspective of some controlling principle or some axiom. And since the 19th century, there have been people who have tried to read Calvin that way. Uh, there were some who suggested that predestination or the sovereignty of God are sort of central dogmas and everything else is just deduced from that. And generally today, people recognize that's just not what Calvin was doing. Also, I think for many people, and some of you may protest at this, but many people will think of, of systematic theologies as cold, logical systems which use philosophical analysis and address the mind. But the Institutes is very different to that. Calvin doesn't avoid all interaction with philosophy, but it is relatively rare. And we can see his approach, especially from his definition of faith. Faith, he says, is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us founded on the truth of the freely given promise in Christ both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit so it's a knowledge and yes it does begin in the mind but it doesn't stop there it, 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 is, it is sealed on our hearts through the Holy Spirit he, he, he talks about faith as knowledge but that doesn't mean as I say that it's the mind only faith um, is certainly not to be seen as just intellectual assent. He makes it clear that faith is much more than accepting the veracity of the gospel accounts or holding to sound doctrine. And he actually says it's possible to treat the word of God as an infallible oracle but not have saving faith. Of course, assent to a fact is important, but faith also includes the personal element. 
it's not just an opinion or a persuasion but a personal confidence in the mercy of God involving not just the mind but the heart he says it's not, it's not sufficient for the mind to be illumined unless the heart is also strengthened and supported because faith is not just the ascent of the mind but also confidence and security of heart indeed he says the chief part of faith is firm and stable constancy of heart so faith again does not just believe the promises of God but also relies on them bringing confidence and boldness so faith much more than just intellectual ascent it involves the whole person, the heart, the will the, 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 um, the emotions and so on and then again his, uh, his definition of the, the, the gospel or, or what he says about the nature of the gospel uh, the gospel he says is a doctrine not of the tongue but of life it is not apprehended by the understanding and memory alone not like mathematics say but it is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds its seat and resting place in the inmost affection of the heart see the same theme coming out as in the um, definition of faith and this affects the way he wrote the institutes uh, he, he um, his aim was not just to inform the intellect but also persuade the whole person and uh, therefore he has a, not just a sort of dry uh, scholastic style but a rhetorical style which appeals to uh, uses argumentation which is intended to move you and not just inform you and this has sometimes caused uh, misunderstanding uh, because part of that is the use of, of hyperbole, exaggeration and so on and uh, Robert Bellamine who was um, a great Roman Catholic philosopher at the end of the 16th century um, complained about Calvin you know he, he isn't telling the truth here he's exaggerating here and so on and he was coming at it from a more scholastic point of view and treating Calvin as if these were sort of mathematical statements and he wasn't taking into account the way in which Calvin was writing rhetorically to move people and uh, not just as I say in a cold intellectual way okay so now we move to the teaching of the institutes and um, for the rest of the time what I want to do is uh, just examine a number of the doctrines taught in the institutes um, all quite briefly uh, with the aim of whetting your appetite to turn to it and read it for yourself and of course also to buy my book while you're doing it <laughs> self-interest you know having taught about the effects of sin in all of our dealings so uh, mustn't pretend otherwise okay predestination where else should one start when, when people ask the question today are you a Calvinist what they usually mean is do you believe in a particular doctrine of predestination and I think this is an unfortunate uh, meaning of the question for three reasons <coughs> first of all predestination was for Calvin just one doctrine it wasn't the central doctrine it wasn't the controlling doctrine it wasn't the most important doctrine so to identify him with predestination in that way uh, is unfortunate secondly it most certainly was not his most distinctive doctrine his teaching on predestination largely follows that of Luther and Zwingli and Luther and Zwingli on this point were largely following a medieval tradition so there was nothing desperately distinctive about any of them on predestination and also predestination was almost universally held among the 16th century reformers although it is true that Calvin's doctrine as, as Luther's and Zwingli's went further than that of some of the other reformers but broadly uh, it was a doctrine that was common to all of them so it's not that distinctive of Calvin 
Thirdly, moving on to more uh, skating on thinner ice, uh, is uh, um, because today the question of are you Calvinist often means do you hold to the five points of Calvinism as summarized in the mnemonic TULIP? And just in case there's anybody here who doesn't know what that means, uh, TULIP stands for total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Well, far from going back to Calvin, this particular formulation emerged in the 1920s. 1920s. Tulip. Now, of course, I'm not fully aware the doctrine is referred to, go back an awful lot further than that, but the actual idea of these five points expressed in that way uh, goes back to the 1920s. Uh, interesting, I, I found that out. There was, uh, I've often, I wonder for a long time when it originated, knowing that it certainly wasn't as old as it was often suggested. And, and somebody wrote on this um, just about a year, a little under a year ago, um, bringing out the evidence for this, which has subsequently been confirmed by further evidence. Now, and there's on even thinner ice, in the sense that I know not all will agree with this, uh, but I, w- I, I think it is fairly widely accepted that Calvin himself did not hold to the third point, limited atonement, but of course I know there are people here who will not agree with me on that. Anyway, predestination, we've got that out of the way, so let's move on to some of the other doctrines in the Institutes, looking especially at areas where, unlike predestination, Calvin's teaching was rather more distinctive. And we start uh, those with the inner witness of the Spirit. Calvin asks the question of the Bible who can convince us that these writings come from God faced with our doubts with the attacks of skeptics how can we be sure that the Bible is the word of God how can we be sure how can we know that with the certainty of faith now here surely is an issue that if anything is more relevant today than it was in Calvin's time because there weren't that many sceptics in Calvin's time, and uh, whereas today, of course, even within the church, you have people um, undermining the Bible, let alone what we see in society outside. So, as I said, it's even more relevant to us. So, how does Calvin answer it? Well, he considers two possible answers, each of which has value, but is insufficient. One answer is to say, we know the Bible is the word of God, because the church tells us Calvin was wary of this argument because of where it could lead. Uh, The next step is, well, you only accept the Bible because the church tells you, so why don't you also accept the church's interpretation of the Bible? (coughs) Or it's the church that gives the authority to the Bible, so the church is the final authority. So that's what Calvin is is concerned about that, uh, for those who might argue that way. Well, Calvin doesn't deny that the church has a role in commending scripture. I mean, how can you? It's obviously true. Uh, But this does not suffice. As he puts it, what will happen to miserable consciences seeking firm assurance of eternal life if all the promises promises of it consist in and depend solely upon the judgment of men? So, is it enough just to to believe it because the church tells us? And note also that, that, that quotation, it ties into my earlier point. What, why, was, why is he concerned about scripture? Uh, he doesn't say, um, what will happen to miserable systematic theologians who are wanting to have proof for all their proof texts for spill up their system? Uh, no. Uh, he says, what will happen to miserable consciences uh, seeking a firm assurance of eternal life? 
Um, it's, it's the Bible as a practical basis of Christian living. That's where the heart of his concern lies. Okay, so it's not enough just to say the church tells us. Another possible answer is to base our belief in Scripture as God's word on rational apologetic arguments. Calvin does not deny that there is a place for this and indeed devotes the next chapter of the Institutes to presenting just such a case. But he makes it clear that rational arguments are inadequate and that at best they can, best they can produce is a probable opinion, not the certainty of faith. It's just worth noting, I think, that the arguments he produces in that chapter are probably about the most dated material that there is in the Institutes and I would think would be of little value today. So on what should we, pri- on what, on what should we primarily base our confidence in Scripture? Well, Calvin says the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us that the Scriptures are God's word. Or as he puts it again, the same Spirit therefore who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. Now, what's Calvin actually referring to here? You know, Where's the beef, as the old abbot said? Is it that as you go to the religious section in W.H. Smith's and, and you look down the scriptures, you know, Bhagavad Gita, nothing, Quran, nothing, the Bible, and a little voice whispers to you, that's the one. Is it like that? Is that what it means by the Spirit? Uh, well, no, it doesn't mean that. It's rather that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so we can see what is there, what is self-evident for those with eyes to see. Uh, our problem is we're blinded by sin and we need the Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see uh, not to show us something that isn't there but to help us to see what is there as he says scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their colour or sweet and bitter things do of their taste again this isn't some esoteric experience given to a few like some you know, elite um, second blessing uh, no he says I speak of nothing other than what each believer experiences within himself so what he's saying he's urging each believer to accept the Bible because the way God speaks to them through it once that is, that is established once our, our acceptance of scripture is uh, based on, on the witness of the spirit then and only then uh, there is a role for the witness of the church to confirm that and for apologetic arguments to defend it but only as he puts it as a secondary aid so I mean he doesn't expect us to um, to read each book of the New Testament in turn and say now you know um, Hebrews you know is that part of scripture is the Holy Spirit speaking to me through it or in the Reformation context perhaps a bit more controversially James uh, is the Holy Spirit speaking to me through James no no we don't build our own private canon based on um, whether we think the Spirit is speaking to us through it Clearly, the church has a role in that. Right, okay, another doctrine which is of some interest today, the doctrine of penal substitution. And as, as many of you are aware, there's been some controversy uh, within evangelicals on, on this in recent years since what has been come to be known as the Chalkgate episode. <laughs> if there is any doctrine that is prone to be caricatured by its own supporters, this one is it. It needs to be stated with great care, and this is what Calvin does. And in particular, I think there are three points where we do well to heed him. First, for Calvin, the death of Christ 
for us on the cross is clearly at the heart of Christ's work. His view of the work of Christ is clearly focused on the cross. And that's where the main thrust of his exposition lies. But this is not at the expense of other aspects of Christ's work. And in answer to the question of how Christ has, quotes, abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly towards us, so as to uh, how he has done that, Calvin replies, he has achieved this for us by the whole course of his obedience. In short, from the time he took on the form of a servant in the Incarnation, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. So in the, his exposition of this, Calvin refers to the life of Christ, his death, resurrection, ascension, and his second coming. Although the bulk of the discussion obviously focuses on the cross. Focuses on the cross. The first one. Secondly, Calvin clearly teaches that Christ bore our punishment on the cross. Our sins were imputed to him and our stain and punishment were cast upon him. Pilate sentenced Jesus to death justly because Jesus was there being judged for our sin and so Pilate rightly condemned him. But Pilate also said that he found no fault in him, John 18.38. And says Calvin, this is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. But Calvin never takes this so far as to say, actually say, God punished Christ. He never says that. Christ bore our punishment, yes. God punished Christ, no. That's a bridge too far. Thirdly, Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Christ underwent, quotes, uh, the severity of God's vengeance to appease his wrath and satisfy his just judgment. He suffered the death that God in his wrath had inflicted upon the wicked. So no, no, no equivocation there. Uh, but despite this, Calvin was adamant that God was never hostile or angry with his son. How could he be angry towards his beloved son, in whom his heart reposed? How could Christ, by his intercession, appease the Father towards us if he were himself hateful to God? So again, I think it's one thing to say, as I think we should say, that Christ bore God's wrath. It's quite another to say God was angry with Christ. So Calvin's doctrine of penal substitution is carefully nuanced. And if we want guidance as to how to state the doctrine within proper limits, uh, we could do a lot worse than turn to Calvin. Uh, next point, union with Christ. And at this point I can see Paul Wells looking very nervous because this is the topic for the next paper which he is giving. So let me assure him that I'm going to say very little about it. <laughs> Many Lutherans and, and others see sanctification as the outworking of justification as a consequence of it. This has a danger. The potential of seeing sanctification as an optional extra. So, you know, you can accept Jesus as saviour uh, and then maybe at a later stage in your life, if you so feel inclined, you can accept him as Lord. For Calvin, by contrast, justification and sanctification both flow from our union with Christ. By faith through the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ and both justification and sanctification follow from this. We can't have one without the other. And Calvin uses the excellent illustration of the heat and light of the sun. When the sun shines, we receive both. In fact, happily we are receiving both at the, at the moment, although maybe we wish you were outside instead. But, so we receive both. But heat is not light, and light is not heat. They're clearly distinct. But they can't be separated. 
So both follow when the sun shines, though in winter we can sometimes have our doubts about the heat. So also, justification and sanctification are distinct, two um, different things, but they cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other. I've got another illustration for this. Um, justification and sanctification are not like a pair of socks that can be separated and in my experience all too often are instead they're like two legs of a pair of trousers when you take one sock out of the washing machine there is no guarantee that the other will follow (laughs) but when you withdraw the left leg of your trousers you can be fairly sure the right leg is not too far behind (laughs) yes um, when I cover this in lectures at the college I actually come along especially wearing unmatching socks for the occasion but I haven't managed that today and certainly wouldn't be much use of it standing there or, or even here really ok faith and assurance faith and assurance it's getting warm that sun is having its effects so I'm going to take my jacket off there are strands of the reformed Calvinist tradition for which assurance has become a problem this is especially acute in the Scottish Free Presbyterians um, just in case any of you are confused here, it's not the we freeze. The free Presbyterians regard the we freeze as dangerous liberals. And, and you think I'm joking, but I'm not. Um, so among the Scottish free Presbyterians, a group I have had such for, for some familiarity with, in their tradition, claiming assurance of salvation is almost seen as presumptuous. Uh, they use an illustration, and one which, which will tell you a little bit about the, what the, the nature of the population of the highlands and islands. A sheep has a mark of ownership on its ear and that mark of ownership can be seen by everyone except by the sheep itself well I mean the message is clear (laughs) if you are a Christian it should be obvious to everybody except yourself in those circles there is a tradition of people noted for their great sanctity but refraining from actually claiming to be converted Indeed, reluctance to claim this is itself at times seen as evidence of sanctification. Now, allied to this is the myth that Calvin denied that we can know um, whether or not we are elect, and and even worse, that he himself died in despair. Both of these, they're alive and well, these rumours, but they're both totally untrue. There is no shortage of evidence about his last days, and he died confidence of salvation. Again, so far was he from teaching that it is impossible to have assurance of salvation that he actually held that assurance of salvation is itself part of saving faith. These these rumours die hard because um, I teach a course on sin and grace and and last year teaching it to the students I had a whole lecture on on Carmen's Doctrine of Assurance and I emphasised this point very very fully and in the final exam uh, one of the students, in fact, I think the student who got the best marks overall and everything, actually, in the context of another question, said, uh, Calvin believed you couldn't have assurance of salvation at all. And my sort of, you just give up in despair. And uh, <laughs> uh, I tackled her afterwards and she said, oh, yes, she just got a bit confused at the time. But, uh, <laughs> but it, the rumour dies very hard. It doesn't die. It's still kicking. Now, in saying this, that, that, that assurance is part of... Um, saving faith, he was following in the the footsteps of Luther, Melanchthon and other mainstream reformers and it follows from his definition of faith already quoted faith as a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, towards us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts uh, through the Holy Spirit 
If saving faith is a knowledge of God's benevolence, which extends to the heart as well as the head, it makes no sense for someone to have that heart confidence, but not actually be confident. Um, or as Calvin goes on to say, briefly, he alone is truly a believer who, convinced by a firm conviction that God is kindly, uh, a kindly and well-disposed father towards him, promises himself all things on the basis of God's generosity. Who, relying on the promises of, of, of God's benevolence towards him, lays hold on an undoubted expectation of salvation. He only is a believer who has this conviction and so on. Now, if that's all Calvin said, that would be unbelievably pastorally insensitive. What do you mean that the moment you doubt your salvation, you have proved that you're not a Christian? Which would be, well, the consequences are pretty obvious. But of course, Calvin was fully aware that genuine believers can and do have doubts. And just after the previous quotation, he goes on to say, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt, or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. On the other hand, we say that believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. Far indeed are we from putting their consciences in any peaceful repose, undisturbed by any tumult at all. Isn't this hopelessly confused? Um, no, I don't think so. On the one hand, Calvin says that saving faith isn't just believing, yes, God will save some people, I don't know who. That's the Roman Catholic view of the Council of Trent, that saving faith is the belief that God will save sinners. But, of course, I may or may not be one of those who are saved. For, for, for Calvin, faith is a trust, in God's promise, a trust in God's promise of salvation that almost by definition implies assurance of salvation. You know, to, to trust in God's promise of salvation, but to doubt that you're saved, if you think about it, is, strictly speaking, a contradiction in terms. But of course, as believers, we all, to a greater or lesser extent, struggle against doubt. These doubts can undermine our assurance of salvation. But the cure for Calvin is not to seek assurance as something separate from faith, but to strengthen our faith and thereby our assurance. The difference on this point between Calvin and some others in the Reformed tradition uh, relates to the question of the ultimate ground for assurance. For Calvin, this is not predestination, good works, experience of the Holy Spirit, or even our faith, but simply Christ and the promises of the Gospel. These other things all have a role to play in assurance, but not as the ultimate ground. It's like it was with the inner witness of the Spirit. There, the Church and rational arguments have a role, but a subsidiary role. And so also, to see the evidence of, the, of good works in our lives can strengthen our assurance, but if we rely primarily on that for knowing that we indeed are children of God, we will have trouble. We are liable either to fall into a false self-confidence or to lapse into despair. And as Calvin puts it, newness of life as the effect of divine adoption, the change that we see in us, serves to confirm confidence, but as a secondary support, whereas we must be founded on grace alone. Well, these are controversial issues, and I'm all the time looking at Joel Beakey in the back. And for, 20 years, uh, for, for 40 years, I've been, almost 40 years, I've been working on Calvin, and about half that length of children, I've been writing different things on the, in fact, that's slightly longer than that, I think, on, on this subject from a slightly different perspective. So um, others don't necessarily, you know, not everybody would necessarily agree with me. Um, but that's the nature of how these things go. Right, okay. Christian life, and here, um, there's going to be a certain not a huge but a certain overlap with um, 
what Joel was saying before lunch because um, we've hit upon the same topic in a way. Five chapters of the Institutes are devoted to the Christian life. Clear evidence that Cowan's aim was not just to inform the mind, but to move the, the mi- sorry through the mind to move the heart. These chapters bear the imprint of the medieval uh, Devotio Moderna, the end of the Middle Ages, as exemplified especially in Thomas de Kempis's so-called imitation of Christ. But, in Cow- but translated from the monastic setting that it had in Thomas to uh, a Protestant secular setting, that is people living out in the world as, as, as Christians. And as we've heard already, that, that he has chapters on the imitation of Christ, self-denial, bearing our cross. And a key verse underlying his teaching here would be Matthew 16:24. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, this goes to the heart of discipleship and to the cost of it. Now the last two chapters of these five chapters, um, and I don't think I mentioned, but he... Um, he thought this was a very important part of the Institute so he published it separately, these five chapters separately as a book on the Christian life so it wasn't just something he threw in on the side um, but it was something that was important, important enough to publish as a separate work to get people to read it the last two chapters concern the correct attitude to this world and the next and here as well as in the earlier chapters, Calvin sets out general principles that help us to deal with one of the pressing issues we face today, that of simplicity of lifestyle. There are two dangers that Christians face, especially those who live in the West. The obvious first one is an affluent materialism that runs counter to the teaching of the Gospels. But the second is a legalism that seeks to tell Christians what they may or may not have. <coughs> and, and, and that sort of legalism in our climate becomes rapidly dated how many c- came across the uh, t- t- advice that it's alright for Christians to have a, color, a black and white television but not a colour television how, how many have come across that in the past <laughs> it just me uh, a few. It, that, that idea was around you know, the worldly thing is to get a colour television but uh, you know, the unworldly thing is just to stay with black and white well it's probably more expensive to buy black <coughs> television these days anyway how can we con- combat the materialism without lapsing into legalism Calvin sets out some general principles that in my view translate well into other cultures and can be applied in 21st century London uh, and even Grand Rapids as well as in 16th century Geneva. If we're to be detached from the the things of this world uh, sorry, we're to be detached from the things of this world um, to the extent that we recognise that it's not our permanent home and you'll recognise that I'm repeating some of the things that, that, that we heard before lunch. So this isn't our permanent home so we're to be detached with them in themselves, they are good gifts of God and, and accepted as such. But in comparison with our future goal, they are to be despised as worthless. So uh, this is this, these opposites, this balance between two opposites that, that we heard about. It doesn't encourage asceticism. We're not to regard these things as evil. There's nothing wrong with, um, uh, with enjoying food, for instance, as, as Calvin says. They are good gifts of God and there is no virtue in, re- in rejecting them. So it's not the ascetic way, but at the same time it relativizes them and warns us against becoming enslaved to them and making idols of them. And we all know, I think, how easy it is to become enslaved to these things. I, I remember somebody once saying about um, how uh, it was George Weber and Operation Mobilization. He said that they'd received a gift of two golden candlesticks. 
And he said, let's praise the Lord for liberating our brother from these candlesticks. <laughs> and the reaction was as, 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 as with you. Um, but he said, no, he said, I'm serious. And, and I, I thought about that, and that was many years ago as well. And he's absolutely right. You know, with our possessions, who possesses them? Do we possess them, or do they possess us? There's a, you know, it's, Jesus didn't say, where your heart is, your treasure is. He said, where your treasure is, your heart is. So... Um, and, and this helps us to, to, to say, recognize, we, it's only for a time. It's not where our ultimate um, good lies. We use these things so far as they help us on our pilgrimage. And there's this need for moderation, which we heard about before. Uh, on the one hand, we avoid a legalistic asceticism. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment per se, and food is given to us to enjoy as well as uh, to keep us alive. But at the same time, we should be frugal and avoid all excess whether gluttony, drunkenness, or whatever. All that we have from God is given in trust for us to use for his glory. And we're called to be generous with those in need. Generosity is not a legal category. It's not a legalistic thing. It's not about a certain percentage, as if we we're paying our taxes. And it can e- Christian giving can easily become that. And also, generosity implies giving with compassion. Uh, and not a cold charity which treats us as objects of contempt and Calvin would be thinking of course about the wealthy people who just throw arms at the poor thinking they've gained merit and, but you know, don't care for them at all and treat them with contempt there's a Dutch in the Kuyperian tradition as we're hearing a Dutch Calvinist uh, newspaper which has a, um, uh, an online test as to, as to are you a Calvinist and uh, it's, it's very interesting and various questions and so on and it's interesting on this one that there are, you have to agree or disagree with a statement and according to whether you disagree agree or disagree um, you, you're reckoned to be a Calvinist and one, one of them is um, I eat in moderation and that's certainly if you agree with that you're, you're a Calvinist uh, another one is sex is something to be enjoyed and it's agreeing with that that makes you a Calvinist it's a gift of God it's not something shameful but then another one uh, is uh, I like to buy, I like to treat myself and, and, and have some luxurious food. And they say that's not the Calvinist one, but I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I don't think, I, don't, I'm, I think Calvin would have believed in eating in moderation. He clearly did. But I don't think he would have believed that you should never, never, you know, actually enjoy an, a really nice one. Anyway, <laughs> find the website. It's, it's, it's great fun. But it's, and, and it's sort of semi serious, but. Uh, Right, okay, now I have two topics left. Um, justification by faith in the Lord's Supper, and I haven't got time to do both, so let's have a vote. <laughs> <laughs> who, who wants justification by faith? Who wants the Lord's Supper? Uh, uh, justification by faith again? Uh, well, I, I, I think I'm going to go justification by faith. It was, it was more, and it's the next one, it was more or less dead heat. Well, what I want to do is actually show you a little oddity in Calvin's thought. Uh, Calvin, of course, was a leading exponent of the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith. I'm assuming you all know that. Uh, you know, that we're accepted by God, but, uh, not because of our own works, but because of what Christ has done. It's, it's purely on, on the basis of Christ and through faith alone. What perhaps you're not all so familiar with, he also has what's known as a doctrine of double justification, that God doesn't just accept me, but he accepts my good works. So if I, you know, I, I, I seek to serve God in this way, maybe in the church or, or, or some other way uh, that I'm seeking to, to serve God, and of course I'm imperfect, I get things wrong, my motives are mixed, but God, with his children, God overlooks that and accepts their good works as well. 
imperfect though they are, in fact worthless though they are, as Calvin says, um, I'll come back to that in a moment, um, but he accepts them in Christ because all that is bad in them is covered by the blood of Christ. But finally, I, I want to draw your attention to a little, little noticed oddity in Calvin's teaching on this point. Um, just to bring out this idea that, you know, with Calvin, we'll bring out several points, and also with Calvin, um, you know, there is a subtlety to his teaching. And that is the oddity, and that is his teaching on, of justification by works. Calvin goes to great pains to deny any inherent value or merit to our works. And I said before, God accepts our works, but purely of his great generosity. Now, giving that for Calvin, these works in themselves are worthless. And personally, I think he goes too far there, but we can talk about that later if you want. It's all the more surprising that Calvin has a doctrine of justification by these worthless works, at least in one place in the Institutes. There he says that we ourselves are accepted by God on the basis of our works. Well, why does he say that? He's wrestling with the case of Cornelius, about whom Peter states that all who act righteously are acceptable to God. This Calvin says, this passage says Calvin, can be reconciled with others only if we acknowledge a double acceptance of man before God. The first is, of course, being accepted by, in Christ by faith. But the, and thereafter, says, God, <coughs> says Calvin, not the Freudian said, <coughs> thereafter, says Calvin, God also accepts believers as a new creation in respect of their works. This is possible for two reasons. First, because God chooses to give this value to our works. And secondly, because he is the author of this righteousness. And so he says God accepts believers by reasons of works. Although it's hard to see why he should do so if they are really as worthless as Calvin keep, uh, repeatedly says. Now, Calvin doesn't actually in so many words say believers are justified by their works, but to be accepted by reason of works, really, that's, that, I don't see it mean anything else. Now, why on earth would he come up with this? And some of the more interesting features in Calvin's theology come where he is pushed, uh, either by, by his opponents, by what the early fathers said, or by scripture, to say things he wouldn't otherwise naturally have said. Now, after this, I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. Uh, after this statement that I read, he goes on to talk about um, uh, the idea of acceptance on the basis of works by expounding his doctrine of, of double. Sorry, he, he talked about. That. He goes on to discuss James's teaching and its relation to Paul's. And here, of course, he has to handle James's statement that we're justified by works and not by faith alone. But this he expounds entirely different from Acts 10. He says justification there refers. Um, to the declaration of righteousness, to God declaring us openly, not to the counting of righteousness. He's not discussing, James is not discussing in what manner we are justified, but demanding of believers a, a righteousness uh, fruitful in good works. So Calvin interprets Acts 10 and James 2 very differently. James, he interprets the way most Protestant evangelical uh, commentaries would do so, but Acts 10 in a, in a rather different way. So, why, why did he treat those passages, two passages, Acts 10 and James 2, so differently? And the answer, I think, is, is nothing to do with uh, systematic theology. I think it's simply because Calvin was such a careful exodus that he, he was determined to interpret each passage according to what it actually says. So, why does Calvin introduce these ideas? And as I say, it, it, I think it, it shows it's because of his commitment to Scripture. Unlike most systematic theologians today, he was committed to listening to and accommodating even those passages which did not easily fit into his theology. Of 
course he doesn't always get that right but that was his conscientious aim and this I, this, I think um, the fact is sorry the fact is abundantly clear that many passages in scripture do teach that quotes the good works of believers are reasons why the law benefits them uh, Calvin felt obliged to accommodate such passages within his theology and uh, had he not felt inclined to do so there was in his time no shortage of Roman Catholic polemicists who would point the fact out to him right okay well there's a, a, a somewhat <coughs> different angle of Calvin to the one we perhaps are more familiar with uh, it's 3 o'clock I said I finished at 3 so I'll, we, we, we won't go move on to the Lord's Supper but it's time for questions okay, I think we might.